0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox Talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the midweek Sox Machine Podcast. Usually, this is Sox Machine Live, but for time and purposes, we couldn't stream this week on YouTube, so we are bringing you a typical podcast this morning. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and in this episode, we'll recap the Cleveland Guardians series. After a gut punch of a loss, which we saw the White Sox lose despite having a six-run lead in the ninth inning, the White Sox bounced back nicely, winning the second game. The third game was postponed because of COVID, the first COVID postponement in 2022, The White Sox are 15-14 and on the season, thanks to more terrific starting pitching. And Gavin Sheets, waking up a bit. He's hit home runs in back-to-back games. Is this finally him waking up and we're going to start seeing more power from him? Hopefully, Sheets and the other White Sox hitters do break out this weekend because the New York Yankees are visiting. We'll preview that series later in the show. But first, there's more off-the-field news involving the Chicago White Sox front office. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. It's a lot more fun to discuss what's going on the field for the White Sox, but something came to light thanks to the reporting from The Athletic at Chicago Sun-Times late on Tuesday, shortly after the White Sox victory over Cleveland. Brian Ball, the former head athletic trader for the Chicago White Sox, was fired late October 2020. He signed a separation agreement shortly after with the White Sox. These agreements often protect the employer. Shortly after, late December 2020, Ball was contacted by someone within the White Sox management. That ball was terminated for his sexual orientation. Those are the details we have on hand, again, reported by The Athletic and Chicago Sometimes. Times. Of course, the White Sox vehemently dispute the allegations. We at Sox Machine, we don't have the lawsuit on hand. Once it hits the public database for either Cook County or State of Illinois, we'll have more details of Ball's accusations against the White Sox. But what I want to mention, Jim, because there's already a lot of speculation from the White Sox fan base, in particular about this case already, is that last fall, when the news of Omar Vizquel came out, all we knew at first was it was a sexual harassment lawsuit filed against him. Naturally, with those types of cases, the public takes sides. Then we obtained the lawsuit from the Birmingham courts, and there are very specific details in that particular lawsuit that paints a terrible picture of Omar Vizquel's conduct and the Birmingham Barons' game day operations staff. That's an active case. Most recently in February, there was an appearance in court for all parties. The Barons and White Sox have separate representation in that case. I just want to caution all White Sox fans to refrain from saying that this is not a big deal. Many, many people in Chicago did not think the Blackhawks did what they did attempting to cover up the sexual assault of former player Kyle Beach. Until we have a copy of the lawsuit on hand, I'm not going to dive deeper into speculation on Brian Ball's accusations, but Jim, this is now two lawsuits against the White Sox front office, and it's not good optics.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not great, however it you know, happened, whether it's a rightful termination, or at least, you know, proper termination that just got messy or hurt feelings, or it's a case where the White Sox really did something egregiously wrong. It's uh, right now, I mean, both could be true. It did remind me a little bit of the Viscal case in that, you know, when the White Sox let go of ball at the time, or when they started to overhaul their strength and conditioning and training program, like there was baseball reasons to do so just like there is baseball reasons to let Omar Vizquel go like Vizquel didn't have a good year at Birmingham like they ran to a lot of outs player development stalled so when Vizquel was let go I didn't think anything of it I thought just well there's his he has no future at the White Sox organization climbing up the ladder you may as well just let him go somewhere else same thing with ball like he was the assistant uh, under Herm Schneider and then took over for a couple years and uh, you know we'd seen late in Herm Schneider's tenure uh, and then carrying over into ball the, the years after even now they're, they're struggling with it but just getting diminishing returns and so you know when the White Sox announced they're going to James Crook, and then you know a year later Alan Thomas was fired and replaced by Golding Simmons just it, it seemed like it was just unusual that the White Sox you know decided to part ways the non-uniform personnel I mean it, they're they're really loath to do that so I, I saw it as like oh it's kind of welcome news in the fact that they're looking to actually address problems rather than stick with who they know even though the results are getting worse so you know that's that's how I looked at it at the time and then you see this come out and say like well you know they't have a skill you know that is precedent you know, you know, when I wrote about it, I just said like the, the two, pre- if Fiscal's precedent, the two aspects, uh, one's the same in that it looked like a baseball reason at the time. Uh, one's different in that the White Sox really, r- really sent out a, a detailed argumentative statement saying that they, you know, die all allegations. They'll be, uh, they welcome the opportunity to to defend themselves, you know, through the legal process. And, you know, just it, it, it's absolutely false. Whereas with Vizquel, they just no comment. And I don't know, like, that's a case where, you know, could be that, you know, one lawsuit has a lot more merit than the others. It could be just a case where the sensitivity involved with the Vizquel one being that, you know, an autistic bat boy, uh, was involved. Like they don't want to go guns blazing when it's a case of, uh, somebody who might've been taken advantage of to one degree or another, even if it's, you know, if the details aren't exactly correct in that lawsuit, but just, uh, this, there was different just how they, you know, reacted to it. So I don't know if that, you know, it could mean that they it's absolutely true and, and, uh, or yeah, the White Sox are, uh, you know, absolutely intent on defending themselves properly. And, and this will kind of fizzle in the courts or it could mean that, uh, they just feel like they can go on the offensive here because they know Ball, they have a longer relationship with him and, and feel like they can win even if there is some merit.
1: These are severe accusations, though, against Rick Hahn. Do you think Major League Baseball, the commissioner's office, will get involved? Because we've seen them get involved in other teams' particular situations, especially this past off season with the New York Mets.
2: I think they're paying attention. Their stance would be that we, you know, we'll let this play out. I think if it somehow goes to a settlement, uh, that might be a case where they might start investigating themselves and wonder like, hey, why was this settled? You know, what are, you know is there anything being uh, swept under the rug? But as long as I think the White Sox are intent on battling it, uh, I think, you know, something where should the White Sox end up on the losing end, then it could mean uh, some jobs Either you know, suspension or some pressure from the league office to uh, to change the leadership of the White Sox ranks. But yeah, as you mentioned with the Blackhawks uh, scandal, just it's it's worth it's worth paying attention to. There's no there's no winner in being correct. Like if you if you try to like uh, bank on you know which side is right, the team's right, the you know, Lawsuits, you know the the lawsuit is merit and balls right. Like there, there's no winner in deciding a just a victor now. So just I'm intent to just not you know let it play out, see what happens. Because I think if you try to defend the White Sox too much or say like oh I can't believe Rickon wouldn't do that, you know would do such a thing or you know Kenny Williams would do such a thing or the White's, you know we've seen it happen where uh, there just is a uh, abdication uh, of leadership and a big um flaw in the culture that just uh somehow emerges so i mean in, i'm intent to say
1: national like, scouting director went to prison
2: yeah so i'm just uh going to say like shrug <laughs> i don't know like it's it's uh yeah yeah uh, i'm leaving it open
1: again once we do get a copy of the lawsuit and again once we get it almost every media outlet in chicago will have a hand on it as well there will be more details coming so i would not sweep this under the rug and we will not be doing that at Sox machine right now we're just putting a pin in it uh, but this is something to take seriously and the chicago white Sox, with their comments to the media are also taking this very seriously so that's off the field let's bring it back to on the field the white Sox split with cleveland the first postponement game in 2022 due to COVID. It sounds like from Cleveland media, many within the guardians coaching staff and travel party tested positive and the team wouldn't have anyone available to manage the game Hmm. for the guardians. It would have to be one of the players if they were forced to play, which is really fascinating type of situation. The guardians have a quick turnaround. They're supposed to play the Minnesota twins this weekend, So I'm not exactly sure what the Guardians are going to do if they don't have anyone healthy enough in the coaching staff to manage and what Major League Baseball is going to require them to do. But the Guardians and White Sox have to make up a game later this season in Chicago. So it'll be another doubleheader for the Chicago White Sox. But for this series, game two, It was much more enjoyable. We had our first virtual watch party on playback with our friends from the 108. That was a blast. So if you got an opportunity to join in and watch us and interact with us in the comments section, thank you guys so much. It was a lot of fun to do, and we'll do that every Tuesday in the national broadcast. So the White Sox, much better in Game 2, winning 4-1. to But there's still a lot of attention being paid to for the first loss uh, because they blew a six run lead in the ninth inning. They lose 12 to nine in 11 innings because Josh Naylor goes crazy becoming the first major league player in baseball history to have two uh, home runs of three runs or more uh, after the ninth inning. So history. Uh, (laughs) But in that particular game, Jim, the defense issues again emerged for the White Sox. They had four errors in that game. Tim Anderson currently has more errors than the New York Yankees. Is this defense going to get better during the season?
2: I think it can. I think, you know, Yom Kata unfortunately contributed to the defensive uh, woes that game. He was supposed to be an improvement over Jake Berger. I think he will. It's just more of a matter of, uh, that's awful timing <laughs> to have the guy you're counting on uh, make a mistake at a key juncture, but... I think it can get better, but a month into the season, it's a pretty good sample size for just defensive adequacy. Because we're seeing like, you know, Anderson struggle and, and, and you know correct his footwork and his you know the zip on his throws, and then uh, kind of uh, fall back into bad habits. Uh, you know, has got to get up to speed. Second base is hit or miss, depending on Harrison or Garcia, because I think there are some positioning issues with Garcia. Abreu's having a bad year scooping, uh, which is kind of strange. And then, you know, the outfield can be decent or rough, depending on who's out there. Like Vaughn's right now having a, a bad year by the metrics. Uh, Sheets, you know, is visibly a plotter and right. And then, you know, kind of Luis Roberts holding that whole thing together. So... Some, I, I think, some alignments of the White Sox defense can be bad, which I think it's you know it's incumbent on Moncada and Anderson to shape up to be like a a good left side of the infield because I think that's really the one area of this team where it can be above average. Like there isn't another sector of the defense that can be. You have two above average defenders right next to each
1: other in six months from now. So we're, doing, we're recording this on May 11th, November 11th, when we have the off-season mm-hmm. plan projects in full swing on Sox Machine Gym. I'm already curious on how many off-season plan projects are moving Tim Anderson off a shortstop. And having the White Sox acquire someone, like if Carlos Correa opts out of his deal with the Minnesota Twins, or Xander Bogart sounds like he's going to be leaving the Boston Red Sox. I, I wonder how many off-season plans we're going to see where – Tim Anderson's still staying with the White Sox, but he's not sticking at shortstop because White Sox fans want a better defensive shortstop at that position. Still want Tim Anderson's bat because he's the best offensive player, at least the most consistent offensive player the White Sox currently have. But that's something that I'm kind of monitoring and predicting now six months away from where (laughs) we are talking. You love these long-range forecasts. I, I do. I do. Because it just... It can't happen to say you got more errors than an entire team does to start the season. It can't happen. And it was great to see in game two, because Anderson a very risky play a grounder was hit at him and there was a runner on second base. It was Owen Miller and Anderson threw the ball to second. And it was a nice tag by Harrison to get Miller and then it was the unorthodox double play because from there, Harrison threw out uh, the hitter at first base to turn the double play uh, with the runner on second base. That was a very impressive defensive play from Tim Anderson. So we know that he could make spectacular defensive plays. But as we continue to get more data, I am going to give him a couple more weeks for the rest of May to kind of overcome this defensive slump that he he's had to start the season, Jim. But I am going to be focusing on Obviously with errors, sometimes it's throwing errors because he's getting to a ball that a less athletic shortstop would not get to, right? We we know that there are those types of errors for Tim Anderson, that the, the score gives him that error. But I'm more focused on the type of data that we see in baseball savant. Is he making consistently the same defensive plays as the other shortstops are? I'm not talking about spectacular plays. I'm mm-hmm. talking about the plays that he should be making and converting on those outs uh, and looking at outs above average because if he's bottom of the league I I don't know how much attention he needs to put on his defense during the season I don't know if it's something that he can get better during the season about but it is definitely something he's going to have to work on in the offseason to get better at his craft because I think that's holding holding him up right now on becoming a top five shortstop at baseball is his defense
2: Yeah, just something I'm not going to stump too hard for, just because I always go back to Royce Clayton uh, replacing Jose Valentin. Um, They were just tired of his errors, so they brought in Clayton as a defensive specialist, and it turned out he couldn't hit, and they they wasted having a great offensive shortstop who could make most plays, just be occasionally frustrating, and they just put a hole in the lineup for no good reason. So that's I always caution when when addressing errors that you don't just. You know, you plug a hole in the boat, but then you just shoot a bigger one in, in a different format. So, yeah, if it's for a Xander Bogarts or Carlos Correa, sure. Uh, if it's for like Dede Gregorius, like sure-handed <laughs> shortstop who uh, is not that good otherwise. Yeah, that's that's where I say no.
1: Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. So if you already have that idea and you're listening to this, that's going to be part of your plan. I'm moving Tim Anderson to second because I'm having the White Sox sign Xander Bogarts fine but if you're trying to find someone else to play the shortstop position I I, I have faith because we've seen Tim Anderson improve defensively I just don't know why to start this season he has regressed defensively but offensively he's still fantastic he still leads the team and wins above replacement Uh, when you were looking at fan graphs Uh, so he's, he's off to a good start this year and again he's the most consistent offensive player but when Tim Anderson makes errors uh they get the spotlight and again he's got more errors than the new york yankees and that's not a good sign what is a good sign is that gavin sheets is starting to wake up jim back-to-back games with the home run uh defensively in game one he goofed up and he dropped a fly ball which was terrible because it was right in front of me as i was in attendance that was not a good look but he came back later in that first inning hit a three run Homer tight game one to nothing. And then he busted open with a two run shot. Are you buying this? Is Gavin sheets starting to figure out what is causing his woes? I'm
2: buying it in terms of he's hitting mistakes. Like that was the thing that was really frustrating about watching sheets early on is that he was fouling hittable fastballs back and, and spinning pitches. He was you're rolling over or, you know, having to settle for singles because he was defensive. So to see him launch a couple of mistakes out, I think is what he needs to do, and and you know that's something easier said than done, of course. And uh, you know if every mistake was launched, then in uh, baseball would be a lot more fun. <laughs> but it's just not something that's uh you know there's there's always a margin for error. Uh, pitchers can get away with because uh, you know hitter is a human, but. Sheets, you know, missing the pitches that he was missing, uh, getting out thought a little bit and and taking pitches he shouldn't have been taking. Seems like he's in a much better space for uh you know, and I think in this case too, it was like, you know, kind of both both homers are knee-high, like just above the knees. So he's able to get the bat low, that that nice lefty uppercut swing, able to to target those. So it, it seems like he had a zone locked in. Um I, whether he can hit pitches outside that zone and, and get around on in inside pitches like you talked about before and uh you know cover you know up and outside the way he seems to avoid swinging at yeah you know, I'm not so sure but hitting mistakes it seems like his timing was a lot better on, on that and he should be able to do that I think in the major leagues
1: now with Gavin Sheets he's been playing more right field I'm not crazy about it we did get this rumor from uh. Rep- reporter Hector Gomez down in Dominican Republic regarding Aloy Jimenez. And Gomez is reporting that Jimenez will return in two weeks. Now, I buy that rumor, Jim, if that meant a rehab stint in Charlotte in two weeks. Mm -hmm. I still think early June is best case scenario for White Sox fans to see Jimenez rejoin the White Sox because Jimenez is definitely going to have to have a rehab stint. Uh, to get back into the flow of things and test out that hamstring before he joins the White Sox uh, in the the major league level. But with Gavin Sheets waking up, like this is a good time because Andrew Vaughn is going through his rehab stint. I don't know what the plan is with Vaughn, if we're going to see Vaughn in this weekend against the Yankees, if he's going to come up in a couple of days, or the White Sox are going to wait until they travel to Kansas City and have Andrew Vaughn meet the White Sox. In Kansas City for those five games in four days, but if Gavin Sheets wants more playing time with the White Sox, now comfortable having AJ Pollock playing left field, and Andrew Vaughn is going to be coming back, he needs to start hitting for power, or he's going to be left behind, or he's going to join Jake Berger down in Charlotte.
2: Yeah, I think Berger was the, you know, the right-handed equivalent of Sheets in terms of somebody who can show massive in-game power, but just wasn't. And the strike zone got away from him. And so when Makata came back, it made sense to send Berger down. And yeah, Sheets was on borrowed time after that because the way Vaughn was hitting, um, you don't need that left-handed caddy that Sheets was providing. It was, you know, decent training wheels for Vaughn if he came out hitting the way that he did last year. But I think he showed that at least fatigue probably played a bigger part in his struggles than he let on at the time in real time. And, and, And this year he looks a lot quicker a lot stronger uh the base looks a lot more solid so I, hopefully when when vaughn comes back from this hand injury full-time it will we'll see tony la Russa playing him like an everyday player and at that point sheets might be you know more of an accessory but it's still useful to have that guy come off the bench and work counts because you know his, his strike zone recognition is pretty good i would say above average especially in this lineup it's just more a matter of I think sometimes he can get uh, you know thrown off by sequences he's not anticipating or you know, zones that he's not looking at and get behind the count and then he gets defensive and loses that ability to really sting the ball. So we saw it last year, we saw it to start this year, and hopefully you know he'll be useful in that regard. I think there's still reason to roster him even if Vaughn's back, just having that nice left-handed thump that is otherwise not in the lineup. But with Hector Gomez, yeah, uh, that his tweet about Eloy Jimenez reminded me of the extension. He was first on the news that Jimenez was signing an extension, but his first value was eight years and a $100 million. Like that's how he reported it. And it turned out to be, you know, not quite. It It was six and 43. And then like, you know, up to eight years with club options and such, but it was just like, not, not quite. So it could be the same case where he has the, the inline to Jimenez and then, you know, has the right timetable for uh, you know, as you mentioned, a rehab stint or something like that. Like it could be missing a specific thing that, that shifts it slightly to where uh, it's not as encouraging as it ultimately sounds. But uh, we saw the White Sox be very cautious with Yohan coming back. And so I, I think I would anticipate them having a lengthy rehab stint for Jimenez just to make sure that he can do all actions on the field. Like he can run hard to first base. Like that they should make sure that he can do that mm-hmm. before calling him back.
1: Yeah, in my mind, I I see Jimenez having five to seven rehab games with Charlotte before rejoining the team. So if that happens, let's say Gomez is right, and Aloy is with Charlotte on May 25th, I mean, maybe Jimenez comes back for the Los Angeles Dodgers series at home. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I I still think that's pretty aggressive. I, I wasn't expecting him until July, Uh, After the injury, because I usually just caution on the if it's six to eight weeks, I'm picking eight weeks in that time frame before we see them again. Uh, But it sounds like things are going well. He spoke to the media. He's taking batting practice. He's doing some light running. So Jimenez might be healing faster than we expected. We may see Jimenez sooner than later. But for Gavin Sheets, if he enjoys playing time, uh, he needs to continue hitting home runs. So he merits that time in the lineup. Now, the White Sox in these two games against Cleveland, Michael Kopech was outstanding. He only allowed one run. It was not earned, so that's why it's even more shocking that Cleveland ended up scoring 12 runs in that game as the 9th, 10th, and 11th just got absolutely crazy for the White Sox. And Lucas Giolito, Lucas Giolito, since 2019, Jim, owns Cleveland. Now it's like nine starts, and he's got a below one ERA against Cleveland. They have only scored six runs against Giolito in 59 innings. They just have not figured out Lucas Giolito ever since he's made that arm change. And it's got me thinking, because obviously Dylan Cease has been fantastic to start the season. Do you think the White Sox, when you just look at the top three of the starting rotation in the American League, using Dylan Cease, Michael Kopech, and Lucas Giolito, do you think they have the strongest top three starting pitching in the league? I think they... I think you can say that in
2: terms of like the the nice blend of name brand recognition for season and, and Giolito, and then the former top prospect, making good finally, and Copec. Like I think, Toronto you know maybe when all is said and done Toronto might have an edge with the way uh, Gaussman's pitching and then Brios is off to a slow start but Brios could get there then like Alec Manoa is in that Kopech mode of just being the top prospect making good they have other guys filling in like I think you know Toronto has a case where their top five is superior to the White Sox current top five with Lynn out you know because they have uh, Striplings pitching well and and they have, you know, even they're able to absorb Ryu uh, off. I think he's hurt. So uh, they, they're able to get five guys, even with Ryu out, uh, you know, the angels, I'm not sure about them. Like they, they rank uh, behind Toronto in terms of pitching wins uh, above replacement for fan graphs. But then you see like, like Patrick Sandoval, like he looked okay, but not great. And, you know, Otani's on a six or seven mm-hmm. day rotation. We just saw Detmer's throw throwing no hitter. So maybe he's for, for real and Syndergaard, you know gets hurts, so it's hard to say, but yeah, I think, you know, in terms of staying power that Kopech and Cease have shown, and then Kopech, you know, delivering on what he his potential, you know, maybe it's Toronto, maybe it's the Yankees, uh with you know, Nestor Cortez looking like a guy. Yep. (laughs) And uh and uh the White Sox being a top three.
1: Yeah, because I I was just looking at the top threes of everyone: Gaussman Manoa, uh, Jose Breos for Toronto, as you mentioned. Houston, Justin Verlander, Framber Valdez. Jacob Odorizzi is throwing the ball pretty well to start the season. You mentioned the Angels with Otani, Sandoval, and Syndergaard. And the Yankees, Garrett Cole, Nestor Cortez, and Jordan Montgomery. And we're going to see all three of those this weekend for the White Sox. But I like when you go into any series with Ciz Kopech and Lito and how well they're throwing, Jim. Mm -hmm. I feel good about the White Sox in the first five, six innings of that game. Yeah. The question that I have is, do they have enough run support that they have the lead, you know, after the fifth or sixth inning? And is the bullpen, does the bullpen have enough energy? Are they too tired already? Uh, Are they overworked already to start the season uh, to be able to hold on to that lead? That's, That's where the Monday loss to Cleveland seeps some doubt for the White Sox in the upcoming weeks in that I am hoping that Liam Hendricks does not run out of gas and is going to have to wait until the All-Star break to re-energize. Uh, now we know that Kendall Graveman, we're not going to see him all the time when the White Sox had the lead because he's on this ridiculous pace of appearances and innings uh, for this season. So the onus is going to have to be on Matt Foster to continue to throw well. Jose Ruiz, Jose Ruiz doing his thing. And you're still going to need Tanner Banks, even though he did not have that great of an outing because the defense didn't help him uh, behind mm-hmm. him. But the White Sox are going to need every one of the bullpen to continue throwing well to be able to hold on to those leads. So that's that's the only thing about Monday's loss that I take away is I really hope the bullpen is not that tired because, boy, when Cease Kopech and G-Leader on the mound, I feel great about the White Sox' chances that night.
2: Yeah, and I'm hoping, too, that with the... Starters slowly getting more uh, leeway when it comes to pitch counts and innings. Um, You know, approaching 100 pitches, Kopech being able to throw six, Giolito throwing seven, Cease getting up there, that that'll take some of the stress off the bullpen too. Not just, you know, looking for run support, but also just cutting down those middle innings where, you know, you have to think about three relievers instead of two. That's, uh, I think, one way that the uh, White Sox pitching staff can kind of meet, I guess, the offense or the circumstances halfway.
1: Well, Jim and I will take a quick break after a word from our sponsors. But next, we break down the upcoming series as the New York Yankees visit the South Side.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data
1: Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Now, the next series for the Chicago White Sox, and it's the New York Yankees. The Yankees are 22-8 and eight to start the season. They have won three straight games. They have a four-and-a-half game lead in the American League East. They have the best record in Major League Baseball. They have won eight of their last ten games. Offensively, the Yankees are fifth in team OPS. They are third in home runs hit. Run prevention... They're second in team ERA. They have a team ERA of 2.6. And they're fourth in strikeouts. As a matter of fact, the Yankees lead the American League pitching-wise in striking out the opposing hitters. And when you are looking at these key stats, Jim, and of course you just look at their win-loss record, the Yankees are playing like the best team in Major League Baseball. This is not some fluke. Hot start. Everything is clicking for this Yankees team. And it is a bit funny because the last couple of years for the Yankees, this is what the expectation was in 2020 and in 2021. And they didn't live up to that expectation. I feel like after the first 30 games of the season, the Yankees are definitely living up to that expectation of where their level of play should be. What kind of test is this for the current White Sox squad knowing that they're still not at full strength, but they are playing against a team that is at full strength and playing their best baseball.
2: They're doing it a, a different way than I thought they would like just the offense isn't. I mean, I, I shouldn't say the offense isn't that impressive, like relative to, I guess the 2022 conditions and the baseball and the weather and whatnot, like they're, they're fine. They're top five offense in terms of OPS that LPS is seven twenty two, which is like a, a, a Decent Larry Garcia month, like slightly above his career average. Like, it's just not, it, it's weird that that's a top five OPS. Like, they're hitting 237 as a team, and they're still top five in OPS. They're a little bit uneven offensively, have home run power with Judge and Stanton and such, but like Josh Donaldson hasn't been much. DJ LeMay, who's been disappointing. So, just it's been well timed. I, I think where the Yankees are special or, or or proving to be like distinguishing themselves against the rest of the league is just defense the run prevention like you mentioned the uh well-rounded pitching staff plus a defense that plays well it seems like you know the the move for kiner falefa uh didn't really impress me too much because i just thought it was you know maybe like that tim anderson move we're talking about we just you know prioritizing plays being made over you know just you know having glaber torres uh being you know overcast at uh shortstop but turns out like it's it's working right now and what a series like this i think will show the white Sox or at least you know you know what they should be thinking as they head into it is like oh they don't make mistakes we can't make mistakes or like we can't if we give up two extra outs we're not going to get those outs back so it should be a measuring stick in that specific facet of the game um just being able to you play clean games like this year when they've played error-free games or at least games with like you know forgivable mistakes They've been fine. Like that's how they got. That's how they won six in a row. Was just Mm -hmm. uh, making you less talented teams beat them, and they couldn't. Uh, They had they had more talent. In this case, like the Yankees have as much talent as the White Sox. So this is a good measuring stick. I think it's a case where like if they do play a sloppy game, whether it's Anderson or corner outfielder that uh, is shouldn't be out there or or what have you, like they'll be exposed. You know, and 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 you know Tony Larusa won't be able to deny that the defense or you know downplay the defensive issues the way he did after uh Monday's game like he'll have to confront that once again but uh you know should they play well defensively and not give up extra outs like I'm I'm just genuinely curious to see how good the Yankees are because you know this is a case where I'm also glad that the White sox are playing at home you know not with the short porch at uh, Yankee Stadium which seems to have been uniquely benefiting the Yankees over the past week. A lot of complaints from the opposing clubhouse about just how cheap those homers are right now. Uh, there are no cheap homers that guaranteed the right field with the way everything's playing. So here's a case where, yeah, it could be a level playing field if the White Sox maintain pace with the Yankees in terms of making sure they convert outs.
1: I like the phrase that you use, a measuring stick, because the White Sox have back-to-back weekend series against the Yankees. This weekend, they're at home. The next weekend, they're going to the Bronx. So it's a quick turnaround, and sandwiched between these two series is a five games and four days at Kauffman Stadium for the White Sox. Next week is, I mean, this entire stretch is pretty brutal. I guess that's the silver lining that the Wednesday game between the White Sox and the Guardians was postponed because it gave the White Sox a day off because they were not going to be getting another day off until Monday, so they get at least that type of rest day. But I, I like the phrase that you used as far as a measuring stick because one of the I, – I, not necessarily a bad thing, but it will give us insight on just how far away the White Sox are from being the best team in the American League. Like, we don't have another series after the trade deadline against the Yankees gym to gauge on, okay, this is where the White Sox were in May. We knew that they were not at full strength. They didn't have Vaughn. They didn't have Jimenez. They didn't have Lynn. And they played again in August. Okay, they got those guys and they added to the roster. So now we'll have a better understanding of where these two teams are. If they can split this series against the Yankees, Jim, I would be very impressed. And it would give me some hope that this team can still be one of the best in the American League. If they get swept by the Yankees, while wow, that would be disappointing. I would not be surprised just because the Yankees are the superior team right now. I don't
2: see a sweep. I think just, you know, as we talk about the White Sox pitching staff, they the starters are good. <laughs> like the starters should be able to, you know, post up and have a great game against a team like the Yankees um, once in a while. So like, I would say like, you know, split seems feasible, even if they lost three out of four. I think in this case, you know, um, given it's one series, I wouldn't make too big of a deal out of it. Just more along the lines of, like, how they look losing three out of four if it comes to that. Like, I think if they win three out of four, like, the Yankees are good enough to where they can't, I don't think they can stumble into a three uh, three out of four. Like, they'll have earned that series win. Uh, In this case, like, if they lose three out of four to a good team, but they look, Mm -hmm. you know, the games are competitive. Like, they're not shooting themselves in the foot. Like, it's just... One pitch here, one you know, extra base here that you know makes a difference. Like fine, so be it. That uh, that just happens to be uh you know how one weekend series works against two good teams. But I just want to see you know nothing like we saw with the you know the Guardian series or the Twin series where they just they they don't look like a real team. Even like you going back to the ALDS against the Astros where they just did not look you know they looked like a you know the, the 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 theoretical can alabama beat an nfl team or can, can kentucky beat an nba the worst nba team just like no like they can't like just it, <laughs> that's what remind me of the central going up against you know another division just can the best team in the central beat the worst team no they can't like not now with the way they look and yeah you know, they should be better than that uh but this is a case where like i said it's this won't be so much a matter of to me, you know, an importance of like how many games they take because the rest of the you know, there's there's a lot of season left, uh, and then if they meet up in October, they will be different looking teams. <laughs> you know, what, even if they don't really make that many changes, just a uh, season takes a toll and and people progress and people regress. But I think it's just more of a matter of how do they look, you know, how are we feeling, how do they, how do they make us feel watching them? Do we just feel like oh, it's, oh, that was an unlucky series, or? good pitching performance, shut them down, what have you. Or is that like, oh, God.
1: Right. You're embarrassed. You know, you yes. walk out Sunday losing 8-1. to one, And when we have the podcast on Monday previewing the five games in four days against the Royals, even though, I mean, the Royals are in disarray, the things that are being written about the Kansas City Royals coming out of Kansas City, uh, really eye-opening and really dour. So maybe the White Sox, you know, they could shock us. They could win four out of five. But that's what I'm saying is like if the White Sox were able to split this series, be one game above 500 still, going into those five games in Kansas City, and if they have a good four days, Jim, where they win three or four out of five against Kansas City, the next time you go into the Bronx, you're not going to be below 500 when you have your next homestand, three games against the Red Sox, who have not been very good, and then mm-hmm. two games against the Cubs, and they just had a series win in San Diego, which shocked a lot of folks. There's still a chance that with this weekend, if you want the White Sox to have a winning record after the month of May, i I'm hoping that they put in a great performance and they're able to split. If they get swept, again, I wouldn't be surprised because the Yankees are just the better team, and that'll be the conversation on Monday is, okay, we've seen a team that's better than the White Sox. Where do they need to approve upon? What kind of players do they need to be scouting right now? Because they need to start those conversations before the trade deadline and identify the achievable targets based on what the White Sox can actually trade for. So the measuring stick, great phrase, Jim. This is a measuring stick weekend for the White Sox. And the pitching problems for this series starting on Thursday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. Luis Gill is making his Major League debut against the Chicago White Sox, and he's going up against Dylan Cease Friday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. Vince Velasquez was supposed to start on Wednesday against Cleveland. He's pushed back to Friday, and he's rewarded with going up against Garrett Cole. So Velasquez is definitely going to have to step up big time, going up against one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. Then in the weekend, the White Sox are facing two lefties. But these lefties have had success against the White Sox in the past. So it's not an automatic win for the White Sox. It's going to be Jordan Montgomery for the Yankees against Dallas Keuchel, who gets the Saturday start. And then on Sunday, it's Nestor Cortez against Michael Kopech. Jim, let's talk about Garrett Cole. What are you hoping to see from this White Sox offense against Cole, knowing that they really struggle against right-handed starters? And here they are facing one of the premium right-handed starters in all of major league baseball
2: well we, we saw it play out last year and I'm, I'm making sure i got the numbers right based on my memory but it's it's a case where you know cole i believe outclassed when we look at the game log here yeah seven shout out innings it was like they they made contact and you know that, that sounds like uh damning with faint praise but cole was you know having a streak of you know you know clusters of 10 plus strikeouts so Seven over seven innings was more of one of his pedestrian totals early in the year, and then I think the the sticky stuff crackdown happened, and he lost a little bit of that that uh, you know mojo. But uh, yeah, he just you know more or less overpowered him. The White Sox lost seven nothing, and that was basically like how it played out. So I think that's what I'm using as the baseline, more or less. Like even Cole, not his best, can shut these White Sox down. So score a run.
1: All right. That sounds good. Good goal. Score at least one run Friday night. I-, I wish the best of luck to Vince Velasquez. If he can go toe-to-toe and keep the Yankees scoreless through five innings, that would be phenomenal for Vince Velasquez. He
2: wanted Mike Trout. He wanted a piece of Mike Trout. Well, he
1: can get a piece of Aaron Judge <laughs> yeah. and John Carlson, uh in this series. The weekend. These two lefties for the Yankees, Montgomery and Cortez. Again, they've given the White Sox problems in the past, uh, especially last year. Do you think the White Sox can figure them out and they can generate some offense against them? Because I I think those two games are what's going to determine whether or not the White Sox can achieve a split.
2: Cortez has been a really cool story. Um, Just basically coming out of nowhere. uh, 36th round pick who's all of a sudden, like one of those Yankee specials where like, yeah, a lot of their top prospects flame out and you wonder like, what's the what's the big deal with their farm system? And then they're able to generate some no-names to fill out a pitching staff or fill out a an infielder, you know, get some, um, you know, dust off some outfielders and get above-average performances to buy some time during an injury. And Cortez is right now one of those guys, and just with all the uh, variations he has to his timing and his delivery, he looks, he, he's a lot of fun to watch. And, you know, that's a case where it's, it's fun to watch until it happens to your team. Um, but right now, I, I think, you know, he seems like one of those pitchers that could be benefiting from uh, the deadish ball just because, you know, the ball's not flying. And so like, you know, the tricks might run out eventually. And, you know, he might have some regression to where he's more ordinary rather than a uh, ERA who's closer to one than two, which I don't think is, you know, realistic for him, but I mean, the fit backs it up and, and, you know, he's got that going for him. So it's, it's hard to say he can't um, yeah, right now just keep this up because the Yankees are good at identifying and developing pitchers like this. So, but, yeah, we, we saw, you know, we've we seen the White Sox get shut down by Daniel Lynch. So they're back at the point where they need to, you know, they, they can't rest on their laurels against left-handed pitching. And eventually, you know, they're going to have to hit some good ones as well as the ordinary ones. And, yeah, if they have a hand in Cortez's regression, um, yeah, I, I think they should feel like it's an incumbent on them to do so.
1: The White Sox weather-wise at Guarantee Rate Field, it's going to be in the mid-80s for Thursday and Friday, so we could still see the ball jump at Guarantee Rate Field. There's going to be a cold front moving into the Chicago area over the weekend in which the temperatures are going to drop in the mid-60s. There is some chance of rain during the day for both of those games, but it looks like uh, it should be dry enough when it is game time between the White Sox and Yankees, Uh, but it will be a bit cooler On Saturday and Sunday, so we'll see if the ball does not fly out of the ballpark, and that still benefits pitchers like Montgomery and Cortez, but that Sunday matchup, Nestor Cortez against Michael Kopech, uh, becomes a really fascinating one, especially when you look at the league leaders right now in the American League, that has become a marquee. Pitchy matchup. But again, we'll recap this series in the Monday episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Jim will have your White Sox wake-up call for Friday morning to recap the Thursday game. Again, Luis Gill making his Major League debut for the Yankees against the White Sox. And we'll see how Dylan sees if he can continue building up his Cy Young resume facing this outstanding Yankees lineup. And if he can shut them down, that's just another feather in his cap to start the season. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll try to have Sox Machine live for you guys next week streaming on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Machine. Please remember that we will have another virtual watch party on playback for Tuesday night, game two of the White Sox doubleheader against the Kansas City Royals. That stream will start at 6 p.m. Central time as we'll be doing that with our friends from the 108. So something to look forward to while you watch the White Sox game. You can watch the White Sox game with us uh, by signing up at getplayback.com. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. And you can also subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And whether you're a first-time listener of the Sox Machine podcast or a longtime lurker of Sox Machine Think about helping support us at, so- at Patreon.com slash SocksMachine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content, they get ad-free versions of the podcast and the website, and they get the first opportunity to purchase our Socks Machine swag. We have monthly plans starting at $2 a month, or you can save with an annual subscription. And again, you can sign up at Patreon.com slash SocksMachine. Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.